when you open up your projects, your data, your science, collaborators come because they are interested in the same thing as you are. And then you can make much better science. And we are going through a change that is so, so fast. Maybe what we need is your data that is hidden in your lab to come up with a great solution for the problems that we are facing. Hi, I'm Stephanie Tumampos, and you're listening to Down to Earth, the show where we talk to incredible geoscientists about their science and its impacts on our planet. This season, we're speaking to a wide variety of folks to investigate all things open science. When I first began studying remote sensing 10 years ago, it was hard to find free data. Free and open data definitely existed, but it wasn't published in an easily discoverable way. Today, I'm interested in learning more about how we can catalog and share data so researchers like myself can easily find, review, and use it. This episode of Down to Earth is brought to you by the IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society's Earth Observation Data Infrastructure and Platform Initiative. There's a growing need for infrastructure to support the open sharing of Earth observation data and resources across various technical committees in the GRSS. The Earth Observation Data and Compute Resources for Technical Development Initiative will build a foundational capability to address this infrastructure need alongside GRSS Open Science Initiatives. Want to be part of building this new platform? Then connect with the GRSS Technical Committees at grss-ieee.org slash community slash technical committees. I'm trained as a researcher, so I have a PhD in ecology, and that's where I first learned my passion for open science, where I've turned an interest in making science more open, accessible, and equitable into a career. I've worked with the government of Canada and organizations such as Mozilla, as well as a nonprofit free review. And I'm also on the Transform to Open Science NASA community panel. This is Dr. Monica Granados. She's the Open Climate Campaign Manager at Creative Commons, where she is working to make the open sharing of research outputs the norm in climate science. This includes sharing publications, data, and educational resources that get produced around climate change. So when I was a teenager, like in high school, my sister, my older sister, was in college. And then she showed me a network of scientific publications in Latin America that's called Cielo. Um, so they have all these open access papers and all these scientific uh, discoveries. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. But then I question, why is that all in English if they are made in Latin America? <laughs> uh, and this was kind of the beginning of my introduction to the open movement. And this is Dr. Graciela Higino. She's a Brazilian ecologist with a PhD in ecology and evolution. She's currently a postdoctoral research and teaching fellow, as well as an open science mentor and consultant with the Living Data Project at the University of British Columbia. In this role, she helps train and mentor grad students in open science practices. Now, Gracieli, you talked about opening data. So, what is open data? Good question. <laughs> Um, I see open data as a concept that is a little bit flexible, but overall is data that is shared under an open license, which allows us to reuse, remix, and reshare the data 
responsibly. So uh, it's always associated with a license and we give attribution, but we can reuse freely. Mm. Where does open data usually come from? Who creates it and how do they make it available? So open data is generated by a lot of things, uh, usually research. Uh, for example, I'm a, an ecologist. Um, so we go to the fieldwork and we collect a lot of data. So then we publish this data and archive it. So this is one of the origins of open data. It can, can come also from community science projects or government when they are uh, monitoring cities, uh, environment, nature, all that. So these all are sources of data that can be published and archived openly. Monica, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think I would say that there's a lot of focus on generating data through the scientific research process, but there's a lot of data that gets generated just existing, right? Data has become uh, omnipresent output you know, every time I talk to my smart speaker that's uh, getting data, commercial entities are creating data, governments are creating data. And so, you know, open data can extend to beyond just the, the scientific process. Open science is, is focused on that. But I think there's a lot of other data that sometimes is produced by non-academic or um, institutional entities that can actually be used for scientific processes or for the public good. That's a really good point. So we have all this data, both scientific and general, but how do we make it open? What's the process? Yeah, yeah. So what the process of opening the data is, uh, so you create the data, you have metadata, so documentation related to this data, explaining what it is, where it comes from, the responsibilities around them. And then you get a license to connect to this data so you know how you can reuse it. Um, and then you archive it into repositories. And when you say repositories, what do you mean? So, you know, most of my experience um, has been uh, mostly GitHub, just because it's a little bit easier to pull in the code. Um, but this was back in, you know, the, the early 2010s. So we've moved now towards specific uh, data repositories. And that's probably where I would recommend that most people put their data is in, in, in repositories because these repositories are curated and maintained by people who understand requirements for repositories and ensuring uh, their upkeep as well. Are there repositories that are better for certain scientists or how, how should a scientist choose what repository to use? Yeah, there's so many. And so if you're thinking about okay, well, I want to make my science as broadly available as possible to as many scientific disciplines, then you might think, okay, well, I want a more general repository, a repository for like scientific data. But if you're thinking about, well, I want a repository that maybe is more specific to the subdiscipline that I'm working with, because that's where colleagues and potential collaborators are going in to look for data and working on similar topics, then you might look at a specific uh, repository for your subdiscipline. And so there's actually a registry of repositories that uh, you can go and search. This registry has a neat tool, this interactive tool where it's sort of like um, a 360 degree circle with all like the scientific 
disciplines and you can then click on a discipline and then it'll go into sort of the sub-disciplines of that discipline. And then once you get to the level of that you're interested in terms of like specificity of discipline, it will give you a list of repositories for that specific discipline. So there's many available to you. You just have to use tools to, to find what's most appropriate for you. Wow, that sounds like a very neat tool for finding the right repository. A question that comes up for me, though, is that if anyone can put data into these repositories, how do we determine whether it's authentic or synthetic? I mean, in my field, we have the ability to create synthetic data that's not based on any real-world events. And we use this data for developing more refined physical models. So can I just upload any type of data to a repository? And if so... How will other people know whether the data is real or synthetic? That's a great question, actually. Um, and I might not have a good answer to it, <laughs> but that's a question we get a lot in our training. So there are a lot of students in ecology that do like simulations uh, to understand nature, right? So they always ask, should I archive this data because it is important for my paper and if people will need to regenerate this data, it would not be accessible. I would say that all the data that is deposited should come with metadata and information about how it was generated and what is the context, who is responsible and all that. Um, so every time you, are, you find the data that you want to use, look for this metadata, this documentation to check uh, where does it come from, why it was generated, and things like that to make better decisions about how to use this data. And I think that speaks to why it's also important if you're generating data, especially data that you're going to make freely accessible with no restrictions, that you need to add that metadata as well. You need to give that context. You know, you need to say, are, is this measuring puppies and kittens or, you know, trees and frogs? Um, because if they're just, if you just have a, a series of numbers in a table, you don't really know um, you know, the uh, the provenance of that data. And so having data provenance is, is, is incredibly important. And I think it's incumbent on the on the generator of that data to, to give that context. Okay. So you both keep mentioning the importance of metadata. So are there any standards for tracking metadata? Yeah, we do have some standards for metadata. From my experience, it will depend a bit on the repository that you choose to deposit your data. So usually they have specific standards for how to write your species name or the specific variables that you need to have in your data set. Yeah, I would I, I echo that sentiment that it usually depends on uh, the repository that you are using. You know, it, you'll go into the repository and they will have sort of forms that you fill out. Think about it kind of like when naturalists go out and collect a specimen. So I used to do this a bit when I was collecting fish in the Detroit and St. Clair rivers. You know, if we were keeping a specimen, we would then add a little tag, like a physical tag that would say what fish we think it is, what, where we found it, how long it is, how much it weighs, and then you would add that to the vial with the fish in it. So you'll, you know, that's basically what you're doing in a digital sense when you're going into a repository. You're going to add that little paper tag. In this case, it's going to be sort of a, a a digital table that you will add that to append to the data that you're going to upload. Another recommendation that I would give is to check out the Frictionless Data Program. So this is a uh, 
a training program run by the Open Knowledge Foundation, and they actually have tools that will help you append metadata to your data set. And it goes actually into really fine detail where you can put context and explanations like on the individual columns or variables that you have in your data so that anyone out of context, you know, who maybe you, you haven't worked with before can get that context to know what is this data uh, about? How was it collected? What does this mean? Is this in pounds or kilograms? Um, really important context like that. So I have a question and it might be a silly question, but why don't we just have one big repository of open data? Wouldn't that make it easier for people to not only find the data, but to know how to follow good metadata practices? I, I love this question because I think when I first started, I had that reaction. It's like, why don't we all just use the same repository and then everything would be standardized and we just would all go to the same place and we'd all uh, hold hands and it would be great. And then uh, you think about reality. And the reality is that, you know, if we put our metaphorical all eggs in a single repository basket, if that repository fails, then we have lost so much knowledge and so much valuable information that is being produced um, in service of like understanding our world. So that's from like the really logistical perspective. It's also that like, you know, you want to have repositories that work for your specific community because different disciplines have different needs. And so you want to have the opportunity for those repositories to be curated for your specific needs. And then the key is to make sure that they talk to each other or that they are federated. And that's, I would say, something that it's not idealized at present. Maybe adding to this problem is, for example, an indigenous community that has generated open data. And then if you have a specific repository where they can have a specific governance over those data sets or this repository, they could have their own terms based on their own context on how to share and how to operate these data sets, right? So this is another aspect that I think having multiple repositories is important. And by uh, the perspective of, of the user, maybe having specific repositories might make your data set more findable. And being findable is one of the principles of open data. Making data open and findable is a noble endeavor, but I can't help but worry about the risk of being scooped. I mean, I barely share any details about my master's research right now because I want to publish it first. My opportunities to advance my career depend on my ability to get my research published. If I just shared it openly, someone else might steal my work. So open data can't possibly be something we can all embrace, right? After the break, I put this question to Monica and Gracieli. So stay tuned. Are you a student or recent grad ready to reach your full potential in the geosciences? Then you need to join the Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society. With over 75 chapters in 94 different countries, you'll connect with a diverse community of professionals, experts and advisors who can inspire your science and help shape your career. Find support and fellowship as part of our Young Professionals Network. Advance your skills through our GRSS schools, student travel grants, workshops, and more. Be at the forefront of geoscience research by joining our technical committees and network with geoscientists from around the world at IGARS, our flagship conference. 
our incredible international community is ready to welcome you. Learn more and get connected today by visiting grss-i-e.org. Welcome back. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Monica Granados, Open Climate Campaign Manager at Creative Commons, and Dr. Graciela Higino, Postdoctoral Research and Teaching Fellow with the Living Data Project at the University of British Columbia. Our conversation so far has looked at what open data is, how it's created, and the repositories used to store it. Like I mentioned before the break, it's all well and good for some researchers to make their data open, but I'm positive many of us are reluctant to do this. Collecting data takes a lot of work, and then analyzing it takes time. And especially for scientists like me, who work independently in research, I cannot publish as quickly as a lab with more resources. This makes me really nervous about making my data available before publishing my research. So I asked Graciela and Monica what they had to say about this fear of being scooped. Here's what they said. That is such a natural reaction. Um, you know, where uh, all of us here have gone through an academic training process and we are made very aware that the way that our career proceeds if we wanted to continue in academia is measured by our publications and the data that we produce is essential to generate publications and the more publications that we generate and the more publications that we put in prestigious journals and prestige has you know an asterisk next to it um, the more likely that we're going to get a job or that we will get promoted and so you know your the natural reaction of course is that I, well, I want to keep all this information as close as possible because this is my currency you know this is going to this is going to determine the success of my career but I like to think of this example as kind of like the opposite of like the, the Drake equation where like, you know, like what's the probability that there is like life on the planet. And I want you to think about like, what's the probability that someone is going to go and find your data, happen to work on the same subfield that you work on, have the same equipment that you have, have the necessary background to take that data and the equipment to then generate new data or a publication, and then do it faster than you who have who has already generated the data and likely have posted it as part of like the, the scholarly communication process. That is, you probably either have a preprint up or a, a manuscript in, in review. And if you think about, you know, you add, you multiply all those probabilities, it's pretty low. That's not to say that it's impossible. You know, I have heard of cases of people being scooped but it's but on the whole it's really improbable that someone will scoop your idea or use the data that you've put up online to beat you at publishing a paper when you're just so much further ahead and have such an advantage yeah uh, just to add to what monica said i think uh, the probability of you being scooped with open data is as high as being scooped without the open data. So <laughs> you talk in the corridors with your colleagues and they can just scoop your data there or your, your ideas, right? And 
if someone else came up with the exact same paper that you were planning on doing, maybe your paper was not so special and you can come up with a better idea, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But one thing that I learned in this open movement training, um, so I participated in the Mozilla Open Leaders. And one thing that struck me back then was how in science we are trained to keep secrets about our ideas and not tell anyone about what we are doing because someone can scoop your ideas. But the first thing that I had to learn then was how collaboration is valuable. And I had this experience a couple of years ago when I was doing my PhD and I was in a lab that was essentially open science lab. And the collaboration that flourished then was they were amazing and I got to finish my PhD because of that. So I think at this time, especially for biodiversity, environmental data, we need to focus on collaboration and open data because we don't have time to lose not knowing about things. Let me backtrack a little bit. So we're talking about benefits, but I just want to also know what are the other barriers that prevent scientists from opening their data or making their data open because it's not just about being scooped. There must be something else. And and there's still a lot, a, a huge number of scientists around the world, I bet, that are still close to the idea of open science. What, why? What do you think are the barriers? Yeah, of course, there's more than just the, the scooping element. Um, we still have a lot of systemic barriers. You know, the first links back to this idea of, of, of promotion and, and tenure, right? Like that is one of the biggest factors that is controlling the way that we do science and the research cycle and the scholarly communication process. Making time to make your data open and doing all of the, you know, accessory work that we talked about earlier to make sure that the data is usable and not just open requires time. It requires resources and you're not incentivized. And so to tackle a barrier, a big barrier like that, we have to also then reevaluate the way that we are evaluating researchers. We need to make open practices a central part of the promotion process, not measure researchers just on the publications that they are producing, but also on some of the science communication work that they may be doing, the service work that they are doing, but also the open practices that they are implementing in their lab and with their students. So we need to make changes to make it easier for scientists to overcome those barriers. Garcielli, do you have any thoughts on this? That's a super complicated question because there are many, many answers. Um, I see a lot of uh, incompatibilities between what we want and how you, we are supporting these things. In Brazil, for example, there are a lot of encouragement for researchers, for professors to publish open access papers, but they don't have the money to pay for APCs. And they started to see open science as a bad thing, which is not the case, but they, are, they d- just don't have the infrastructure or the resources to understand how to navigate. So there's this incompatibility between what we want and how we are supporting. So the solutions, (laughs) I think it starts with bigger things like the government, institutions, having the infrastructure, the support, incentives, making the environment 
where researchers are working, nurturing and uh, encouraging for open science and welcoming to open science. To expand on Graciela's point, you need that top-down pressure. And so in the specific example that I recently went through in the government of Canada, where we developed open science action plans for the science-based departments and agencies in the government of Canada, that was catalyzed by the creation of the roadmap for open science that came from the Office of the Chief Science Advisor. So it's a pretty high level. You know, the Chief Science Advisor reports directly to the Prime Minister of Canada, and she said, this is what we're going to be doing for open science. And I am requesting that science-based departments and agencies write open science action plans. And so having that top-down pressure really allowed us to move the work forward. We're taking that idea into the open climate campaign as well, where we're looking at at um, working with funders, national governments, and environmental organizations. So the people who are giving the money to do the research. And if we change what the policy is for you to receive this money, where we've got a, a, a mandate to publish open access with you know many forms available, not strictly through article processing charges, and making associated data open, that will induce change because you're getting that pressure from the top, from the people who are controlling the money. I'm glad you brought up the Open Climate Campaign because I want to know more about this initiative. What's it about? Yeah. So I work at Creative Commons on the Open Climate Campaign. And the goal of this Open Climate Campaign, which is a four-year project, is to make the open sharing of research outputs the norm in climate science. And that may include the publications, the data that's associated with it, educational resources, all of that knowledge that gets produced around climate change and climate science and biodiversity needs to be open for us to get to climate solutions. Opening climate change knowledge or the knowledge about climate change won't necessarily solve climate change, but it's a necessary condition, I think, to address all of the other dimensions that many incredible organizations and nonprofits and NGOs are working on. And so we would love to partner with them. So yeah, we're just on the beginning of this journey. Um, it's a a uh, four-year project, as I mentioned, we started in August, and um, we're working with uh, Spark as well as Eiffel and a really great uh, steering committee to work on moving us towards uh, open access as a default for climate science. That's really exciting, Monica. And what about you, Graciely? You're with the Living Data Project. What is this all about? Yes. The Living Data Project is a cross-Canadian project that is hosted within the Canadian Institute of Ecology and Evolution. So the main goal is to train grad students into open science. So they have this internship that we call uh, the Data Rescue Internships, which we train the grad students in the courses, and then they apply for the internships, and they work for like three months with partner organizations, retiring researchers that have this drawers or libraries full of notebooks <laughs> and they rescue this data and make them open access. I think this project is really beautiful in the sense that it's preserving the memory and valuing the work of researchers that spend so much time in the field and guaranteeing that their work is not going to waste in time, right? 
And I think it's really important because it avoids redundancy. So we don't need to go to the field again to rediscover the same data that is already collected. And it saves money. It saves a lot of money. We had a, a paper published that tried to do a breakdown how much money we need to invest again to recollect data that we lost. So we can save millions and millions of dollars just opening the access to data sets. Wow, that's so interesting. I mean, this aspect of saving money through opening data is one that we haven't really discussed yet. I'd love to dig further into it, but we'll have to save that for a future episode. One last thing I'd like to ask, though. Do you have any advice for our listeners when it comes to open data? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think understanding data, understanding the type of you know data that you collect for your research, but also that data is powering the world now is incredibly important. And also understanding how the data that's being collected about you is being used, but also like how you interact with data, I think is incredibly, incredibly valuable. I see it more and more in uh, different jobs. So I think that is a, it's an incredible investment in uh, the training of, of early career researchers, whether you go into academia or not. I think understanding how to work with data is, is really important. And of course, doing that in, in an open and transparent way would be ideal. Graciely. Um I think what would be really helpful is to change the mindset from someone is going to scoop me to someone's going to collaborate with me. I think that's the main point because that's how I see open science thriving and how I see people really engaging with open science and seeing the benefits. I would add that one thing that I see a lot in the grad students is that they face a barrier on how am I dealing with my supervisor who doesn't practice open science? And I would like to say that open science has many aspects. You don't need to open up all your research at once. And one thing that is really, really interesting and valuable and um, good to do is instead of focusing on your collaboration with your advisor, is collaborating with your colleagues. Uh, so find a peer to go through this road with you and learning with you. And I think that community learning is really valuable and can be really encouraging. So find someone to go through this world of open science with you. Speaking to Monica and Gracieli has certainly cleared up some of my fears about opening my own data. But something Gracieli mentioned halfway through the interview about rules for data repositories has piqued my curiosity and has me wondering, what do we do about data governance? In the next episode, I'm going to investigate this question with a researcher from New Mexico who lives and breathes data governance. In the meantime, follow Monica and her work with the Open Climate Campaign. My personal Twitter handle is monsauce. And if you want to know more about the Open Climate Campaign, we're also on Twitter at OpenClimateCamp and at www.OpenClimateCampaign.org. Catch up with Gracieli and learn more about her work, too. I'm pretty much Gracieli Gino in all the places. <laughs> Gino with age. I have a website, too. It's Gracieli.science. While you're following these amazing researchers, be sure to also follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And send some love to our sponsors at IEEE underscore GRSS on Twitter and Instagram and IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing on Facebook and LinkedIn. 
This episode was produced by Nicole Bedford from Nicole Bedford Films with help from me, Stephanie Tomampos. Graphics and design by Mylene Briggs of Killam Media. And a special thanks to Yvonne Ivy Parker and Keely Roth for their support. I'm Stephanie Tomampos and you've been listening to Down to Earth.